the best person in bed ever. And this is WCBN, FM, and Arbor. We're listening to Straight Up by Sean Paul. Before that, we heard Busy Signal and Too Much Gun. And then Beanie Man did Heart Attack. Bunch of Jamaican dancehall music for you. Right now, it's time for the Living Writers. So do stay tuned to WCBN, FM, Ann Arbor. Such a feeling's coming over me. There is wonder in my Good afternoon. You're listening to the Living Writers Show on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, my guest today is author Mary Gateskill. She has published stories in Harper's The New Yorker, Esquire, Best American Short Stories, the O. Henry Price Stories, has been a recipient of the Guggenheim Fellowship and the Penn Faulkner Award for her, a finalist for Penn Faulkner Award for her book, Because They Wanted to. Her first book of stories, Bad Behavior, made its appearance in 1988, followed by a novel, Two Girls, Fat and Thin, in 1991, then Because They Wanted to. And the, the book we'll be discussing today is her novel, Veronica, out in hardback in 2005, and now just out in paperback. It's been the finalist for the National Book Award. It's wonderful to have you today here today, Mary Gateskill. Thanks for joining us. Thanks. And I, I have a question to ask you before we start. Sure. Uh, admittedly, very trivial one. Do, is the Karen Carpenter song your theme song, or did you just pick that? <laughs> no, I just picked it because of um, she's mentioned in the book. And the, yeah, she, I, I wondered because for that reason. Yeah, and we'll end the show with a little um, aria from Rigoletto, and then we have some music in the middle that you chose. And uh, and so, yes, it's all from the book. In fact, that's maybe a good place to start. We usually um, start out by having folks read right from their work, but... Um, Since you asked the question, um, music makes a big appearance in the book, and there are a couple of um, pieces that you chose for our breaks, and I wonder if um, you'll think about that question as you bring us into the book, and then we'll, we'll talk about it. Of why I picked the questions, the the particular songs. The particular songs and how music is working in the book. But let's start, um, if you'll read a passage to get us into it and sort of set the stage, and then um, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about the music. I said I hadn't gone to New York to be a model, and I hadn't. I'd gone there for life and sex and cruelty. Not something you learn in community college. Not something you write in a notebook. The city was so big and bright that for a moment my terrible heaven paled, then went invisible. I thought it was gone, but what I couldn't see, I felt walking next to me in streets full of buying people. I felt it in their fixed, outthrust faces, their busy, rigid backs, their jiggling jewelry, their creeping and swagger. I felt it in the office workers who perched in flocks on the concrete flower boxes of giant corporate banks, eating their lunches over crossed legs and rumpled laps, the wind blowing their hair in their chewing mouths, and waves of scabby pigeons surging at their feet, eating the bits that fell on the pavement. I felt it in the rough, sensate hands of subway musicians playing on drums and guitars while the singer collected money with his cup, still singing like he was talking to himself in a carelessly beautiful voice, while riders streamed down concrete stairs like drab birds made fantastic in flight. I felt monstrous wants 
and gorgeous terrors that found forms in radio songs, movie screens, billboards, layers of posters on decayed walls, public dreams bleeding into one another on cheap paper like they might bleed from person to person. I took it in and fed on it, and for a while that was enough. Then one day on my one day on my way to work, a cab stopped in front of me on a trash-blown street, and Alana got out. I looked at her and my breath stopped. She slammed the cab door. Her shining hair flashed about her face. I stood still while everybody else crossed the street. She walked lightly in neat white boots, but her eyes gave off the cold glow of an eel whipping through remote water. Down, through the water floated a magazine picture of a girl in crumpled lace. A picture like a door with music behind it, rolling with the water and soon to be erased by it. Alana, I said, but too softly. She walked past me without turning. My face burned, and I wanted heaven again. Thank you. Now, Veronica is a, a novel about a friendship largely between two women. Um, the woman who narrates, Allison, who is the voice that you were speaking in there, who has an, a career as a very young woman in Paris as a runway and print model, and then eventually ends up being a model also in New York. This is that sort of in-between moment, but when she's um, fallen from the heaven of Paris and is not back into any sort of um, fabulous life like the one in Paris in New York. Well, I'm using the term heaven in a rather hellish manner. Uh, it's it's a kind of uh, it's a sort of heaven of a obsessive fantasy. The sort of heaven, uh, I think, almost any idea involving a perfect state, which is what heaven is purportedly is, and something that really human beings can't imagine, but try to imagine with a great deal of energy on Earth. Um, I think uh, when you look at any almost any fashion magazine spread, it's an attempt to create a sort of perfect Apollonian vision of life that's heavenly in some sense. But there's something quite horrible about it because to achieve that, that appearance of heavenliness, so much needs to be stripped out and frozen that there's something both very arresting and hypnotizing about it and also ghastly. I think the same is true of, say, romantic fantasies that are unrequited, um, or sometimes even if they're requited, there's something something in you that's so starving for something to reach, the, the experience to reach such an impossible pinnacle that can't be reached really by a human being that it becomes... Uh, do you remember the image earlier in the book when she is in Paris? Uh, where she, the they go, the group of people just kind of on a lark go out to a sadomasochist club, and Allison, to her horror, sees this. Most of the people there are quite ordinary people, dressed up in costume and entertaining themselves. Uh, but there's one person there who's naked and not in a costume, who's clearly mentally not there. And he's got, he looks like a homeless person. He's ragged. He's emaciated. His nails are so long, they're like dog's nails. And he can't even speak. He's crawling around moaning and licking the floor. Um, that image to me is an image of someone who in some way has been in pursuit of, quote, heaven, close quote, for a very long time. And so that all the illusion of beauty has completely been stripped away. It's like obsession. That's Obsession can be really kind of fun and exciting. But once that juice of passion gets wrung out, 
that neediness at the bottom of it. To me, the image of that man was an image of that neediness. And it's something that's very recognizable to me. And something that many people are quite afraid of. However, you use that particular image um, in a really interesting way in the book. Um, That character ends up back at Allison's house at her apartment in Paris. Um, she wakes up to find her lover, the the man who's paying for the apartment also, and her agent um, feeding dinner to this um, very sad man. And um, I believe there's a moment when um, Veronica, the, the title character of the novel, um, learns of this story. Allison tells it to her, and Veronica says, I understand now why you loved him. And Allison says, you do. And Veronica says, yes, he was willing to go places that most people won't go. He was looking at himself, you know. Most people won't do that. Um, do you think that's true, that most people won't look at who they are? And um, is there a purpose behind um, your use of this, these kind, this kind, or examination of this kind of heaven to kind of require us to confront where we don't want to go? Well, first I want to go back to um, what you said when I I was describing this this, uh, crazy naked guy (laughs) as uh, something very recognizable to me, um, and you said it was something most people were afraid of. I think most people may be afraid of it because they recognize it Uh themselves, and it is frightening. It's a terrible thing to see. Another way to put it is addiction. I mean, I, I... that language is a little tiresome to me for a number of reasons, but uh, there's an image in The Infinite Jest where one of the characters imagines his addiction as this sort of horrible, endlessly open, kind of gnawing mouth. It's a similar type of image. But uh, the, the what you just read, most people won't look at themselves. I, I don't think anyone can look at themselves fully. I don't think we're built that way. I think people are very strange to themselves. We're always trying to figure it out um, one way or another, but it occurred to me a few years ago that people are like quite small containers that get born into this very discreet form. We like to think of our personalities. It's very knowable and discreet. But the older you get, the more clear it becomes to you that there's things in you that you're totally unaware of. And it's sometimes one of them will just pop up. Something will happen to cause something to pop up into your awareness. But it's like something that's been buried in this tiny little container and gotten mashed down so that your awareness is only room, only has room for what's at the top. And then you may be quite shocked when the, the container gets shaken up and this other strange thing comes popping out and you, you're like, I, I never knew I had that in me. Um, people sometimes discover it when they're in an extreme situation like war or any kind of crisis or emotional emergency, but I think it's always there. Well, and in the, originally, I, I guess it was in um, about 10 years ago, was it, or 1991-92, you wrote a first draft of, of Veronica in um, 100 pages in, um, in 100 days, something very, very fast, wasn't it? No, it was... Not a hundred days. <laughs> a uh, page a day for it, it, was it was about a year. About a year. Okay, so a very fast draft. And then when you went back in, um, you set up a frame so that Allison tells the story from um, the from not from the time of Paris and New York, but from a time when she's in her late forties and um, is sick and dying of hepatitis C. Um, did you choose that moment as the as the sort of frame because of this time when things kind of bubble up as you get older and 
that that surprising confrontation? In part, yes. I mean, in in the first draft, the first draft was very very rough. That was part of why it was very difficult for me to go back to it. I wasn't. I didn't keep working on it all that time, from between uh, 2001 and 92 or whenever it was. I I I actually just dropped it during those years, and I would look at it, and I simply had no idea what to do with it. Um, in the original version, it was a much shorter time period. It was, uh, I think, maybe six months after Veronica's death that Allison was thinking about it. Allison was a much younger woman. She was not sick. Um, and it, it, there was no Paris stuff at all. I knew nothing about the modeling industry. So Allison was uh, much older when she met Veronica. She's 28, I think. I didn't realize that it's just about impossible for a 28-year-old to become a runway model, <laughs> right? And that, that's just not going to happen. Um, They're already ancient by then. Oh yeah, most of them are quitting by then, if they even get that far. Um, but um, yeah, I, what you what you asked it. That's because I had aged and changed, and I was very interested in how, as you get older, your your apprehension of time becomes very very layered. I mean, I think young people can have that too, depending on their personality. But um, when you get older, at least for me. It's become really striking how the time becomes like layers of various layers of silk, and you can see it's like one layer one layer maybe have a, one series of images on it, and those feelings are like those images too, and then another layer will be on top of that, and they become very mixed and very interesting as you see through one layer to the to the bottom and I wanted to convey that um, with Allison's perception, which I heightened because she is sick and running a fever. Well, and and you do that not only um, sort of thematically, but stylistically. The j- paragraphs are juxtaposed, and within paragraphs, we jump around a lot in in time, um, which has the effect of not only sort of creating this fevered feeling um, that Allison is experiencing at the time that she's thinking through the story, but also the kind of anxiety that's created um, and is felt in the characters throughout the story. It's a, it's a really interesting jumping back and forth around. Um, well, I think style is extremely important. It's much more so than most people realize. Um, it's usually when people talk about literary style or they think of it as a, a fairly superficial quality, something that may be pleasing and make the story uh, entertaining, but but that it it's not as meaty as the actual events or substance or plot. But it's to me, if it's working well, it should be. You can't see this gesture, but like it should be like <laughs> two crossed fingers with the with the plot, because what it is is the form. Um, the 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 plot almost actually is like the body, and the style is like the features of the body. They exist to express the nature and the essence of the story. And if they don't, if they don't work properly, if they're not the right container, the story cannot be felt or understood properly. But I didn't mean it so much to suggest anxiety as I did to suggest one of the, to me, one of the themes of the book, which is the theme of form and, and the, disintegr- the inevitable disintegration of form. Allison is something, that's something she's very aware of because she's not that old, really. I mean, 48, really, and not very old. No. But... Um, in her case, she experiences herself as aging because she's hasn't taken care of. She's but she's poor at the time of the book. Is at the present time, she's sick and she hasn't been able to take care of herself. And she's lived pretty hard, so she does not feel good. And her her looks are gone, and she's very aware and sensitive to 
her disintegration and to the disintegration around her. She's walking through through the town of San Rafael, California, but also that a lot of it takes place during a walk in a mountain, and there's a lot of a, a lot of imagery with decay of trees and just what you see when you walk in the forest, a lot of decay as well as a lot of growth, and they're very they have a beautiful relationship, and I wanted to suggest that too. This kind of so the prose has a means to have a kind of dissolving and reforming, dissolving and reforming quality. Well, that's a good place to take a short break. Um, we're going to cut to some music that you chose for us, um, the white pepper ice cream. Do you want to talk about why you chose that, and then we'll cut to it? Oh, that was totally intuitive. I just uh, that's just what came into my head. All right, well let's songs. let's take a listen. You're tuned into the Living Radio, uh, the Living Writers Show on WCVN FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David. My guest today, Mary Gateskill, is the author of Veronica. We'll be right back. Good afternoon. This is Ashley David. You're tuned in to The Living Writers Show on WCVN-FM Ann Arbor. My guest, Mary Gateskill, is the author of Veronica, among other things, but we're talking about Veronica today, and white pepper ice cream. <laughs> what was intuitive about that choice? So is it just, uh, how did you, you thought radio and you thought white pepper ice cream. Is it, is it Chiba Mato? Yes. I th- no, it was, uh, when you asked me for songs that might go with the breaks, and I tried to think musically for Veronica, and those are really just what popped into my head, the Chief of Mata and, and uh, John, that John Cale song and uh, the other one that you can right. find. Also, I did think of Marianne Faithful as well. Uh-huh, uh-huh. But uh, they weren't meant to be, like, thematically totally connected. But when I actually, I, had, I was unfamiliar with this song, and when I pulled it up this morning to um, bring it in, I was like, oh, yeah, that fits. <laughs> fits that fits the mood. It totally does, yeah. Well, there's something kind of, yeah, something kind of, Rueful. It's like so, it sounds like somebody pondering an experience that she didn't quite understand. Right, which is what we've got going on here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm going to read a, a short little quote um, that came from a January 27th, 1904 letter from Franz Kafka to Oscar Pollock. He said, "We need the books that affect us like disaster, that grieve us deeply, like the death of someone we loved more than ourselves, like being banished into forests far from everyone, like a suicide. A book must be the axe for the frozen sea inside us." We were speaking a little bit about um, style and the way style and plot work together, and and how important that duo is to you um, in your work. And um, we were also speaking a little bit about how things bubble up at unexpected moments as we as we age, um, the, the kinds of things that you kind of that you can't keep down. 
I wonder if you would um, speak a little bit about the way pity and love and the ideas of destruction and redemption are working in Veronica and um, maybe in your work generally, how you circle around those ideas. And, and is there a, um, an impetus to kind of crack through a frozen sea of emotion or, um, or is this just um, a result? Well, first of all, the Kafka quote you read, that's a great quote. I never, I hadn't seen that. And it's, I think, quite uh, contrary to what most people think literature is supposed to be now. It seems like without, though I, I, I think very few people would say this, but it seems to be true that most Americans right now want re- writing that will reassure them, that will present perhaps. I, I think people also like to be shocked and horrified. <laughs> people <laughs> always like that. Uh, but I think that what, what they like it to be followed with is something very reassuring. Uh, um, that's what I've, I've I've been noticing, which is odd because their their own lives can't, can't be so reassuring, which maybe that, that was a dumb thing I just said. It, there's nothing odd about it. I think people are scared shitless right now. And uh, it, it's kind of like in the Depression, people wanting to see beautiful, happy images of rich people that they could think that maybe they would be someday, um, but which had no relationship to anything that was happening to them. I, I think there's something similar going on. But um, other qu- part of your question, um, uh, I, I'm interested in the way people have responded to the use of the word pity in in the book. Um, towards the end, Allison says that she there's a use of a fairy tale by Hans Christian Andersen, which is about a spoiled, beautiful girl who falls down into a muddy uh, hell realm of, of demons, and she gets imprisoned there and, and tortured and starved, and she's aware of all the horrible things everyone is saying about her, and finally she gets she's saved because someone hears this mostly when people hear the story about her they say what a bitch she deserved it but somebody finally thinks that poor cries when she hears it and because of this she the the girl herself when someone actually cries for her she changes a little she just something changes in her and very gradually that's what enables her to be freed she turns into a bird and flies out of the out of the marsh and I refer to the, that story throughout the book. It's a story that the, Allison's mother has read to her. And at the end, I refer back to it, and, and Allison thinks she became like a demon creature, but she wasn't saved by the compassion of a pure little girl. She was saved by the pity of another demon who looked at her with pity and so became human. And some people have taken exception to that because pity, the word pity is considered to be insulting now um yeah like it's bad to have pity for somebody it it connotes that you're looking down on them Mm -hmm. but actually it's in one interview when somebody asked me that i said well we're all to be pitied yes in the nerve interview on some level you know we're all going to uh at some point be confronted with things that uh scare us and destroy us whether it's simply dying (laughs) and uh there's some way in which we need to confront our, we're very reluctant to confront our, our vulnerability and uh, just human mortality. But do also you think that has to do with human nature, this unwillingness to confront it, or is it a sign of the times, if you will? I think it's both. Uh, it, for most of history, it may be human nature to not want to confront it, but we've been, we've had to. I think people now are, are very padded and, and, 
and protected and given a lot of illusions that make them not have to face it. But really, if you look the word pity up in the dictionary, it's almost the same thing as compassion. I think the more negative connotation is, is at least in the dictionary, I have what the last one. It's like, you know how they list one, two, three. Right. The first one is, is, is compassion. But to me, the word has more power than compassion because compassion is something that you feel. It, to me, it has a more cerebral effect. It's more a sense of I see that person's distress. I feel compassion for them. Um, but when you, to me, pity is a more visceral, powerful, physical feeling. Like if you were somebody who was on <laughs> getting flooded out of your home during Katrina in New Orleans, and you were clinging to your roof and watching your neighbor's child being torn out of her arms, you would feel, the, you would feel, pity would be like an overwhelming feeling of horror and, and pain in your gut, and there would be no way you would be looking down on that person. Mm -hmm. To me, pity is something that's like a, almost like a bodily feeling when you see people like shot and, and their guts spilling out around you. It, it, that, there's horror in that too, but also there's a profound feeling of, of compassion is not just not strong enough word to me. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's, it has nothing to do with feeling superior. It's feeling part of feeling helpless and just your own raw um, smallness and frailty and inability to help you can't help your neighbor you can't help the bleeding people so that's that's part of what i meant to evoke but it's also i think a divine emotion that's that that has a sense of divinity about it to me as well and what i what i meant to suggest in that final passage is here is somebody who veronica is actually in a worse situation than allison she is dying but she can still look on her and as she's leaving the world feel pity for this other person who's lost this just lost confused little girl really mm -hmm. and Allison feels it very powerfully even though she doesn't know it she doesn't fully feel it until she gets she's older because it hasn't come up yet well maybe we could take a look at that passage you have it marked don't you would you mind reading that for us yeah this is where she's uh, it's towards the end and she's thinking about Veronica's actual death I sit on the wet ground. My cruelty had been pointless. My kindness had been pointless. I remember rubbing the small bones in the center of Veronica's chest. I remember her surprised at being touched that way, the slight shift in her facial expression, as if feelings of love and friendship had been wakened by the intimate touch. The subtle muscles between her chest bones seemed to open a little. And then I left. I never should have touched her like that and then turned around and left, leaving her chest open and defenseless against the feelings that might come into it, feelings of love and friendship left unrequited once more. I put my head on my knees. I fantasize giving Veronica a full-body massage with oil with warm blankets wrapped around the resting limbs. Drops of sweat would have rolled from my arms to melt on her skin. When I finished, I would have held her in my arms. Except she never would have allowed any of that. She only responded to the chest touch because I took her by surprise. 
My mind distends from me, groping the air in long fingers, looking for Veronica. The air is cold and bloated with moisture. Veronica is not here. I draw back inside myself. Again, I try to imagine what it was like for her. And this time, I can. I imagine her lying on her couch, descending slowly into darkness, the electronic ribbon of television sound breaking into particles of codified appetites, the varied contexts of which must have been impossible to remember. I wonder if at certain moments a peal of music or an urgent scream had leapt in tandem with the movement of the darkness, and if so, what that had felt like. I wonder if Veronica's spirit had tried to cling to the ersatz warmth of the TV noise. I think of a motherless baby animal clinging to a wire mother placed in its cage by curious scientists. I imagine Veronica drawing away from everything she had become on earth, withdrawing the spirit blood from what had been herself, allowing its limbs to blacken and fall off. I imagine Veronica's spirit stripped to its skeleton, then stripped of all but its shocked, staring eyes, yet clinging to life in a fierce, contracted posture that came from great habitual pain. I imagine the desiccated spirit as a tiny ash in enormous darkness. I imagine the dark penetrated by something Veronica at first could not see, but could sense, something substantive and complete, beyond any human definition of those words. In my mind's eye, it unfurled itself before Veronica. It said, I am love. And Veronica, hearing, came out of her contraction with small stunted motions. In her eyes was recognition and disbelief as if she were seeing what she had sought all her life and was terrified to believe in, lest it prove to be false. Yes, it said, I am real. Come. And Veronica, drawing on the dregs of her strength and her trust, leapt into its embrace and was gone. I stare at the clay dirt before me. I think of the great teeth, the lion cub torn to pieces in the adult's embrace. I imagine the methodical grind of digestion and blood. I imagine a moving black coil with white shapes inside it, disintegrating in a grind of dirt, roots, and bones. I look up. Before me is a small tree with delicate, orangey skin its limbs with dull, sparse clusters of leaves and buds arrayed like static flame. It plants its roots in the bones and the dirt, and it drinks. I think of my sister's bit of flesh, red with triumph, and my mother's joyous head. I think of Veronica leaping into complete embrace, her love requited now forever. 
Thank you. That's Mary Gateskill reading from Veronica. You're tuned into the Living Writers Show on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. You've got the money, I've got the time. You want your freedom, make your freedom mine. Cause I've got the style it takes And money is all that it takes You've got connections and I've got the art You like attention and I like your looks I have the style it takes And you know the people it takes Why don't you sit right over there We'll do a movie portrait I'll turn the camera on And I won't even be there A portrait that moves, you look great That's John Cale and Lou Reed singing Style It Takes which is um, a cut that my guest Mary Gateskill chose for the Today's Show. Um, was that one also intuitive or was there a... Um, yeah, those, there's kind of an obvious, certainly not, <laughs> it follows what I read a little strangely, but, but in terms of, I could see it as a soundtrack to the early part of Allison's experience in, in Paris, definitely. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, I'd like to ask you a little bit, we talked at the beginning of the show about um, Veronica says she understands why Allison loved her um lover in Paris who was awful to her in the end. He locked her out of her home and stole all her money and um, arguably sort of took advantage of lots of things even while he was being good to her. Um, I wonder, I it's impossible to read anything about any of your work without coming across um, statements like um, that, that have to do with your breaking all kinds of um, rules that had been held before and not I don't mean rules that were written down but just um that you've been a you've you've been unafraid in your work to go where many people have have not gone um have you consciously set out to write about subjects or scenarios or stories or emotions that do fall outside the the the, the spectrum that many of us in the sort of happy happy um live happily ever after um, part of the U.S. seem to expect? Or I mean, was that a conscious decision to write outside that acceptable spectrum? Or um, is it is it more a product of something else, how you see or what you're interested and intrigued by? Or Well, uh, I actually don't. Um, it seems like in the broader American culture, I don't, uh, there's some idea of certainly of being happy and cheerful and positive and bright colors and so on and so forth but there's there's so turn on television i mean it's uh you see horrible stuff all the time people being horribly murdered or, or a lot of cruelty on tv a lot of uh it, culture has become seems to me remarkably sophisticated about integrating a lot of violence and cruelty into the mainstream picture it's often done in a in a way that's so quick and so surfacey that you don't really feel it 
Um, but nonetheless, it's there's certainly a lot of gaudy images out there, and in song music as well, and and movies definitely. So it's always a little surprising to me when people react. I don't think I've ever done anything as horrific as gets done in quite popular movies. But uh, I mean, some of the imagery in Veronica is kind of nightmarish. But I think perhaps in an odd way, even though images and sound penetrate people much more. They can get penetrate deep really fast, which writing cannot do. Writing is a much softer and slower medium. But I think it's almost in a way, if a person is willing to take it in, writing can penetrate you on a more real level, be, partially because it's softer. I'm not quite sure how to that makes sense. but Well, it does. And the, the reason I asked the question was because I was actually, I had read your work before I went to read about your work. And I was actually kind of shocked by the ways in which it was characterized as if, you know, there were sort of ne- flashing neon signs of um, things that were outside the spectrum of, of what we call. And for example, um, Janet Maslin of the New York Times wrote, um, Gateskill writes so radiantly about violent self-loathing that the very incongruousness of her language has shocking power. And um, this speaks both to the beauty of, of your language and also to what I was finding in many um, blurbs about your work that had to do with this notion of violent self-loathing or um, uh, very painful and, you know, difficult places. And I I guess the reason that I was sort of surprised by those characterizations is the the ways in which I found access to your work has been um, sort of aha moments. It's been to say, well, yeah, that's what it feels like to be this lonely or to be this um, sad or to be this sick. Or it, it, there's been a, a, for me, a like, well, a recognition, I guess, when I read it. And and I would expect that that would be similar for everyone. And so I've been surprised by the kind of almost sensational ways in which people have characterized some of what you've written. Well, thanks. I'm glad to hear that because I'm I'm puzzled by a lot of it too. I actually didn't read a lot of the reviews for Veronica, but I I, I have read my past reviews, but I I kind of deliberately didn't with this one. But I I saw that blurb certainly, and I I don't know what to make of it. Almost, it's like you wonder where these people live. <laughs> um, like, I like, but, yeah, I I do have that. I was like, wait a minute, am I really outside of it? <laughs> yes, and also I just don't see Allison as a self-loathing character. I mean, there's I would say that she's disappointed in herself in some ways that she feels that she's behaved in a she's sort of wasted a lot of her time being rather self-involved and and vain. And that she didn't support Veronica as much as she would have liked to. But my, my God, she's a kid. Most kids in their early 20s confronted with something like AIDS, especially given that Veronica at the time she became sick wasn't a close friend of hers. Considering that, I think she behaves really well. But she's nonetheless you know, wishing, because she's older now and understands more deeply how frightening and alone, uh, how alone Veronica was. But I, that's not self-loathing. No, it doesn't seem to me to be that either. It seems complicated and complex and confused. I mean, she goes through many different emotions in the book, but I I never get the sense that, I mean, she may have regret, but I never get the sense of this sort of self-loathing. And I wonder, actually, if some of the um, blurbs that hint at or go straight out and say something about self-loathing or something like it, um, if that isn't... Um, a way of kind of pushing aside things that people are afraid to confront. Um, I, I I don't know. I'm, I was just very puzzled and um, didn't find. I found the book 
um, it's actually hard to talk about because it hits so real. Um, if if like I, there's a a transparency with which I experienced my reading of the book that makes it harder to kind of talk about it than I find it to talk about some other books. Yeah, I remember once a reviewer for Two Girls said that reading the book was like, no, actually, she wasn't even talking about that book. This is what makes it even weirder. She was talking about bad behavior, which this is, I Your think. Your first book. Yeah, she said it was like, it was, it was, it was, like walking down the street and and being confronted by a ho- a ragged homeless person, and I, I remember talking about that with a guy I knew at the time, and he said it's more like walking down the street and confronting a sexy girl in a halter top. But <laughs> but, but uh, apart from that, it, I just said, does this woman live in New York? She must not be able to leave her house. There's like ragged homeless people everywhere. If that's if it's that bothersome to her, how does she how does she negotiate life at all? I mean, I, I would guess there's in that woman's case there's there's more frightening things going on in her life than she read in the book, or equally. But I don't I don't know I don't know how to explain it. You don't drive, is that is that still the case? No, I've I've learned how to drive. A oh, lot. you have learned how to drive. Okay. <laughs> well, I was struck when I read th- that you did not drive um, for many years, um, and also didn't live in New York for some of those years. So you walked many places, and I'm. I'm wondering, and this is just coming off the top of my head now, but I'm wondering, many of the places you lived until fairly recently and with driving, you would have walked slowly enough to see all the things that I imagine a lot of people moved by quite quickly in their cars or... Yeah, and that, that did influence the, the writing of this book that um, Allison is walking t- for the whole thing almost in, in the present time, and she's really noticing the people that walk past her. And there's a sense that she's almost kind of in a kind of a strange overlap world where there's the world where there's your family and your friends and the the structures, the social structures that dictate what's important and the biological structures to some extent of your family that dictate what's important and who is important to you. And then there's uh, another realm where people may have all kinds of strange connections to you that you're not aware of and she's in some place without those two worlds have overlapped and she's looking at people and noticing their eyes and it's almost like she's intuiting messages from them or thinking that she can and you might think well she's a crazy person but uh, to me it's just sort of there's a, a sort of odd thing that can happen when you're walking along outside of the normal pattern of life where everything is just rushing past you so quickly that you feel like you're moving against the grain of everything and you do kind of or you can step out of that normal order and enter into it's almost like you're a a spirit kind of visiting and looking in at the looking in at the windows and you just apprehend things differently well, very shortly in the studio, we're going to be apprehending things very differently. The sports <laughs> report is coming up, oh, okay. and so it's about time for us to say goodbye. But um, you're reading this evening at Shaman Drum, is it? I think it's at Angel Hall, but it's connected with Shaman Drum somehow. Okay, and the reading's at 7 o'clock. I think so. Wonderful. Well, um, folks can call Shaman Drum for details about the venue um, if to, to confirm that it, where it is then. And um, that's at 7 o'clock this evening. Mary Gateskill will be reading. Will you be reading from Veronica or will you be yeah. reading? Yeah. Okay. We'll be reading from Veronica. And I um, hope you all can make it out for that. Next week, my guest will be resident expert from The Daily Show these days, John Hodgman, who has written an almanac of things he made up. 
It's the true word of things she invented. So John Hodgman coming up next week. And um, stay tuned because the sports report is next on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. You've been tuned into the Living Writers Show. Mary Gateskill, thank you very much for joining me today. Thanks. It's been a real pleasure. Archives for the show can be found at www.wcbn.org slash livingwriters. Stay tuned. around the boards. Hensick is there. Puts it out in front. Shot at them by Turnbull. He scores! Travis Turnbull took a bouncing puck in front and knocks it in the net. Wolverines extend that lead. It's now 3-1. to one. Eight seconds left to go. He will dump it into neutral ice. Five seconds left to go. Hensick gets a